Well, great. My name is Dave Shive, and I'm one of the pastors here at TBA, and it is an honor to be with you this morning. Um, but before we start, I want to ask you a question. Is there anyone here that was part of a fraternity or sorority in college? Anybody do that? A few people? Anybody that's ever joined any kind of organization, a social order, anything like that? Anybody ever do that? Join a club, something like that? All right, so here's what I want you to do. For the next two minutes, I want you to turn to your neighbor. If you don't know who they are, introduce yourself to them. And then I want you to tell them what's the craziest thing you've ever done to be accepted to any kind of organization. Do that for two minutes. Go. Okay, does anybody have anything really, really crazy? Something just absolutely crazy. Anybody? Have anything crazy that you do? Nobody? Nobody did anything crazy. Well, let me tell you what I did to join my fraternity. Um, oh, man, where do I start? There's so many things. Well, I had to sleep in wet jeans one time on a desk that was about two feet long and three feet wide. I had to do that. had to be a human speed bump in the cafeteria so that everybody that came through the, up the stairs, I had to lay there on the ground and go, I'm a human speed bump. I'm a human speed bump. I'm a human speed bump. Um, I had to be a human alarm clock for one of uh, the guys I was pledging with. So he, when the morning came, I'd have to, at 6 o'clock, I'd have to sit there and go, beep, beep, beep. And he'd hit me on the head and go snooze for five minutes. So, so anyways, I remember doing all of these stupid things as a pledge goes through, and I remember finally after going through pledging, finally getting that jersey that had those Greek letters on the front of them, and I felt like I belonged. I felt like I was a part of that fraternity. I stood what they stood for, and they were my brothers. See, when a person joins an organization, he obligates himself to live and act in accordance with the standards of that group. He adopts their standards as his own. A citizen of a country is obligated to abide by the laws of that country that they live in. An employee is obligated to work according to the rules and the standards of the company that they work for. When somebody joins an athletic team, he's obligated to play as the coach orders and according to the rules of that sport. See, human society, we cannot operate without those kind of obligations. We have this natural desire to be accepted and to belong. And many people will go to almost any lengths to qualify for acceptance in a fraternal order, a social club, an athletic team, or any other group. And many people will also go to great lengths to keep from being rejected by that group. But sometimes in church, such loyalties to standards and the fear of rejection by the church do not operate with the same force. See, often we're happy to have the spiritual security, the blessings, and the promises of the gospel, but we have too little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we continue in our study of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to Ephesians chapter 4. If it's on your iPhone or your iPad, that's great. Open that up. But if you don't have one, that's all right. We're going to have the scriptures up here on the screen for you as well. 
Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks as we've been studying Ephesians, you'll remember in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul talks about all the amazing riches that we have from God, all the things that Christ has given us, that we've been called by grace, that we have access to every spiritual blessing, that we've been reconciled. See, Paul is setting a foundation for us. He's telling us the truth about our identity in Christ, who we are. So the first three chapters are about blessings, honors, and the privileges of being a child of God. But in the next three chapters, he talks about our obligations and our requirements of being God's child. See, it's a call for a practical response to the first three chapters. So in other words, what Paul is saying is his, he's saying, I've told you about all of this wealth all of these amazing riches that you have in Christ. So now I'm going to tell you how you should walk in Christ because of the things that Christ has given you. You see, when we make a decision to follow Christ, we become citizens of his kingdom and members of his family. And along with those blessings and privileges that we get as being part of the family, we also have family obligations. See, Jesus expects us to act like the new people that we are. He expects his standards to become our standards, his purposes to be our purposes, his desires to be our desires. And that's what Paul introduces here in chapter 4. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, remember Paul is writing this while he's in prison in Rome to the church of Ephesus. Therefore, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of of your calling, for you have been called by God. See, the therefore is the transition from all that Paul said in the first three chapters. Paul is saying that because of all that God has given you, I am pleading with you that you will live a life that is worthy of your calling because you have been called by God himself. And Paul begins to lay out what that that life looks like, what that worthy Uh, walk looks like. And he starts in verse 2 by saying this, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. See, Paul lists five essentials that we all must have in order to work, work, to walk worthy of our call and their humility gentleness, patience, forbearing love, and unity or peace. See, I believe Paul is not only calling the church in Ephesus to live these things out with each other, but also to live them out in the relationships that they have outside of the church as well. Now, we could probably do a sermon on each one of these characteristics, but we don't have time to do that today, so we're just going to go through each one of them real briefly. So the first one is humility. Humility is the foundation that all the other characteristics flow from, but yet it's the hardest one to hold on to. Humility literally means to think with lowliness. It's to see others from a lower position. Now, this was a foreign concept to the Greek and the Romans of the day. Humility was a word, I mean, literally, it was a word that they did not have in their vocabulary. The concept of being humble to a Greek or a Roman meant that you were a coward, You were ignoble, and you were pitifully weak. But yet it's the foundation of our Christian faith. See, we can't even begin to please God without humility. We can't even accept the gift of salvation without admitting that we are sinners and humbling ourselves before God. 
Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and you become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Yet, yet humility is hard to hold on to because if we focus on it too much, it turns into pride, which is the opposite of humility. And pride is the number one temptation of Satan. It was the original sin that brought Adam and Eve down. Pride is at the heart of every sin because basically when we sin, we're saying that we know what is better for our lives than what God has for our lives. And we become these little mini-gods. This is something I think we all struggle with. And I think we're always going to struggle with it until Christ returns because it's that sin that's in us that's innate. And our only protection against pride and our only source of humility is a proper view of God, seeing Him in His proper place over our lives. Pride is the sin of taking control of our lives and living the way that we want to. And humility is the virtue of submitting to His direction and to His glory. Now, humility always produces the next characteristic that Paul lists, and that's gentleness or meekness. Meekness is one of the surest signs of true humility. See, you cannot possess meekness without humility. You cannot possess meekness with pride. Many dictionaries define meekness as timid or a deficiency in courage or spirit. But see, that's far from the biblical meaning. What Paul is referring to here is a mild, self-controlled spirit. The meaning of meekness has nothing to do with being weak, afraid, indifferent. The Greek word that they use to translate meekness is the same word that they used of wild animals who were tamed, especially of horses, horses that they would break and train. See, a horse that's broken and trained still has strength. It still has power, but its will is under the control of its master. And meekness is power under control. Biblical meekness or gentleness is power under God's control. And Jesus shows a picture of that when the soldiers came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Peter drew his sword to defend Jesus, Jesus said this. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And that he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. See, Jesus had access to infinite divine power, which he could at any of time used in his own defense. Yet he didn't once choose to use it. Instead, he held back in order to obey his Father's will. See, that's the ultimate picture of meekness. Power under control. A person who is meek has that self-control. People who are angered at every nuisance or inconvenience in life, they know nothing of meekness or gentleness. A meek person is a peacemaker, somebody who readily forgives and helps to restore broken relationships, even if they're not in the wrong. They go out of their way to make things right, oftentimes absorbing the cost of the conflict. Because for them, restoring that relationship is more important than being right. Humility and meekness or gentleness, they go hand in hand. And the two together produce the third characteristic that Paul talks about, and that's patience. The Greek word translated for patience literally means long-tempered and is sometimes translated as long-suffering. 
A patient person endures negative circumstances and never gives in to them. See, Abraham received the promise of God, but he had to wait many years to see its fulfillment. Yet the writer of Hebrews said that he waited patiently to receive his promise. God told Noah to build a ship in the wilderness far from any body of water. And Noah worked on that boat for 120 years before the floodwaters came. When God called Jeremiah, he told the prophet that no one would believe his message and that he would be hated and persecuted. Yet Jeremiah served God faithfully and patiently until the end of his life. See, a patient person accepts God's plan for everything without questioning and without complaining. A patient person is able to weather life's storms with the right perspective, knowing that God is in control of all things. A patient person understands that suffering is part of following Christ. And that the trials that are in our lives, those trials are meant to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. With relation to each other, a patient person is able to endure discomfort without fighting back, which leads to our fourth characteristic, which is forbearing love. Paul says, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. See, forbearing love gives continuously and unconditionally. It isn't a self-love because self-love only cares for others because of what it can get from them. Self-love is the love that takes and never gives. It isn't a reciprocal love either, a love that gives as long as it receives. See, forbearing love is a love that is unselfish, a love that willingly gives whether it receives or not. It's the love that goes out even to enemies and prays for them. It's the love that God has for us. So humility gives birth to gentleness. Gentleness gives birth to patience. Patience gives birth to forbearing love. And all of those characteristics bring about unity in the body of Christ. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Now Paul is not speaking about organizational unity here meaning that every church has to be the same, with the same denomination, the same style, and the same methods. Unity does not mean sameness. In fact, unity is achieved through diversity. What Paul is talking about here is a unity of the Spirit, meaning that all Christians, regardless of denomination, style, or method, that they can see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We call it kingdom-mindedness, meaning that we're about God's kingdom, not TBA's kingdom. And we will partner with anybody that has that same mindset. But sadly, there are a few churches with that philosophy. See, so many churches are so concerned about preserving their traditions and theology, they see other churches as competition. And that's sad. Because imagine what we could accomplish if churches showed mutual respect for each other and were willing to engage in conversation, serve together, even on occasion worship together. Imagine what we could accomplish. Because see, I think we could change the world. I mean, after all, we have the same mission in Christ. And that's to bring light into a dark world and offer hope to those who have no hope. Because we all belong to the same God. Paul continues in verse 4, For there is one body 
and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. So even though we mess up and find reasons not to work together, God is still in control and is able to take our divisions and use it to his glory and to further his kingdom. Because each church that preaches Christ crucified is bringing light into the world. So each church has a part to play in building the kingdom of God. And so does each individual. Paul continues in 7, However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Christ has given each one of us a special gift. A gift through which we use to build his kingdom. Now our gifts could be, but are not limited to, things like leadership, administration, hospitality, empathy, teaching, preaching, discernment, musical ability, love for the poor, singing, the ability to make money. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. But our gifts are not determined by our personalities, our preferences, or any other personal consideration. We are gifted according to God's plan and purpose. But yet that gift is unique to us. Because just because two people have the same ability to teach One may excel in public teaching in a large group while another excels at teaching in a very small group. You add to that individuality, personality, background, education, life influences, it becomes very obvious that each believer is unique, and that is by God's design. See, I don't think any Christian can replace another Christian in God's plan. He has a specific plan for each one of us, And by God's design, when we individually come together and we use those gifts collectively, then something amazing happens. It's like an orchestra. See, you may be a trumpet, you may be a flute, you may be an oboe, and the music that you play by yourself, it's beautiful music, and it's unique, and it's gifted from God. But when all of those instruments come together, under the guidance of the master conductor, then the music that comes from that harmony of everyone working together becomes a masterpiece. Now that doesn't mean that we're irreplaceable because God will use whatever instruments show up and who are willing to play. And that the music that comes will still be amazing. But let's be honest, not everybody wants to play in the orchestra. And that's a shame. Because I believe when we don't use our gifts as God has designed, then I believe that God's work suffers from it. Because how much sweeter could the music be if we all played our part? And how do you think God feels when we don't use his gifts? Did you ever give somebody a gift that they never used, that they just put in the closet or on the shelf and never thought about it again? I mean, how does that make you feel? Not to use our gift. I think, is a rejection of God's wisdom. It's a rebuff of his love and grace, and it's a loss to his church. And I think it grieves God's heart. See, we did not determine our gift. We didn't deserve it or earn it, but we all have a gift from the Lord. And his desire is for us to use it and to make that amazing orchestra-like music. You know, Brian talked about this last week. 
It is not by coincidence that you are here. It isn't by chance. I believe with all of my heart that each and every one of you are here at this specific place for this specific time. I don't believe it's coincidence that God has put on our hearts as pastors to have ministries that help single mothers, to have ministries that help feed and clothe the poor, and at the same time we have people in our church who have that same passion. I don't believe it's coincidence that God has put Highland City on our heart. And at the same time, God is bringing people to our church that have the same passion for that same area in our community. The same passion to share the gospel of Christ to a community that desperately needs it. I don't believe it's coincidence that the only door that has been open to us in Highland City for the past two years has been Highland City Elementary who we have built an amazing relationship with. And then as we have been praying for God to open the door these past two years, that a house is for sale right next to the school. See, I don't believe in coincidence at all. I believe it is all providential. I believe that it is providential that you are here at TBA. It is God-designed because each one of you, each one of your gifts is needed to accomplish this vision. All of us have a part to play. That's why nobody can be a spectator. A spectator. Every person is on the team and every person is strategic in God's plan with his own unique skills, positions, and responsibilities. And to not use those gifts, to not use them, would be a tragedy, especially since it costs Christ so much to give us those gifts. Look at verse 8. Paul says that's why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world and that the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Paul is quoting Psalm 68 here. And he's applying a victory song written by David to Christ. But before that victory was won, Jesus had to descend into the depths and filth that is humanity. And he allowed himself to be spat upon, humiliated, and beaten. And he was rejected by his own creation, and he was crucified by their hands, all so we could know the freedom and love of God. Thankfully, he overcame death. And he freed us from our slavery of sin. And he ascended to the heights. And through his amazing love and grace, he has given us every spiritual blessing. He has given us gifts to accomplish his mission and to bring life to those around us. God has given gifts to all of us individually. But he's also given gifts to the church overall as well. Look at verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. I thought about what I wanted to say about this passage of Scripture for a long time. 
And I could talk about the unrealistic expectations that church members put on their pastors, expecting them to do all things and to be all things and to attend all things, when in reality, the pastors are called to equip the church to do the ministry. I could talk about the immense burnout and depression that comes from investing in so many people so much just to walk them walk away from the church without a phone call or an email, much less without a reason for leaving that isn't preference-based. I, I could do all that, but I don't want to. I, I want to share with you my heart and the heart of our other pastors about why we do what we do. See, most of my life, I've been a part of church in some form or fashion. And for most of that time, I have been disappointed, frustrated, and unfulfilled. See, I would see such huge potential for God's work. Immense talent and resources available to be leveraged for God's kingdom. A desire in the leadership to see people come to that life-giving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But for whatever reason, those resources were never used. Oh, the talk was good. The talk was great. But when it came to walking the walk, it just never happened. See, for once in my life, just once, I want to be a part of a church that makes a difference. A part of a church who not only says the right things, but puts those things into action. A church that is really about reaching the community instead of about being about themselves. A church that is really about seeing relationships mended and marriages restored. A church that is about bringing spiritual as well as physical healing to those who are so desperate for any glimpse of hope. A church that is willing to die to itself and sacrifice it all simply because they are so in love with God. A church that is never about its own name or glory, but all about God's name and His glory. I want us to be that church. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make those things happen. And the same is true for Brian and Brian. But the three of us know there is no way, there is no way that we can do it by ourselves. We just can't. Last week, Brian asked you to imagine. Imagine what it would look like to truly be the hands and feet of Jesus, meeting spiritual and physical needs in our community. To imagine all the things that could be possible if we all committed to following God and did whatever He asked of us. Last week, our leadership came to this stage and they kneeled before God and they kneeled before you in prayer, asking God to give us a desire and commitment to follow through on this amazing vision that He has for us. But this vision is too big for just the pastors and ministry directors. See, there is no way we can do it alone. If we really want to be the church that I believe God wants TBA to be, if we really want to hear that sweet, sweet orchestra music, then every instrument in the orchestra has to play. And if they do, 
the results will be amazing. Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together as each part does its own special work, that special gift, that instrument in the orchestra. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. See, the growth of the church, the impact on God's kingdom, will only happen when every member of the body is using their gifts in harmony with one another. Christ is the source, he's the life, he is the growth of church. But he has chosen to use that power through us. And we're his people are obedient when we live a life that is worthy of our calling. When we live a life full of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing love and unity, then God works. But if we are not in harmony with each other, if we do not answer the call in obedience and use all the gifts and all the resources God has given us, then I believe God can't work. I don't think he can work in us. And I think he will look to others who are willing to answer his call because his mission will be accomplished. I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. And I don't know about you guys, but I think that we have what it takes I think that we have it in us to be what God wants us to be as TBA, as his church. And I'm excited about our future. I really am. So I want to challenge you to do this this week. I want you to spend a week in prayer. Every single day, get up and pray and ask God to reveal to your heart what part is he asking you to play in the symphony how does he want you to use your time, your talents, and your resources for his kingdom? And if God's putting something on your heart, please let us know. Send us an email. Write it on your connection card because we want to be praying with you as well to see that accomplished. Are you willing to walk worthy of your calling? Because if we all say yes, then I think amazing things are, are to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your amazing love and grace in our lives. Thank you, God, that you have sacrificed all things for us in order to give us the privileges of being a child of God, to give us every spiritual blessing. God, thank you that, that you've done that regardless of our hearts. But God, please give us a heart that is, wants to be obedient. God, give us a desire to do whatever it takes to answer your call and to be worthy of that calling, God. God, I want us to be the church you want us to be. God, I pray that we're the church that you want us to be. God, I pray that your hand of blessing is upon us and, and that we will be obedient to your call. Father, help us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.